there's always been a presence around the U.S. ski team or national team. There's been 11 people that have either made the development team or been on the U.S. ski team. We swing above our weight class. And what that creates isn't any sort of overt exceptionalism. It's just there's a segment of the skiing population, we're not for everybody, that when they get to Berkshire East, they say, wow, this is what I miss. Welcome to the storm. I'm host, Stuart Winchester. Hey, New England, I've got something good for you to end your year with. We will get right to Berkshire East and Catamount. But first, if you're a paid subscriber, thank you. You are getting this conversation seven days before free subscribers. I appreciate you and your commitment to independent ski journalism. If you are not a paid subscriber yet, I appreciate you listening. But I do want you to know that there are benefits to upgrading to paid. Not only do you get new podcasts one week in advance, but you get the full text of every Storm Skiing Journal article, which typically is about 80% of what I publish. And remember, when you upgrade to paid, you are helping to ensure the future of ski journalism that is about more than stoke and bro culture. I am talking about the lift serve skiing world that 99% of us actually inhabit. And if you're not subscribed yet at all, free or paid, you can do that at stormskiing.com. You can also follow the storm on Twitter, X, Instagram, or threads at Stormski Journal. All right, let's talk about Hotronics, ski boot, foot warmers, and heated socks. Who says that skiing has to be an endurance contest? You don't have to suffer through cold feet during long days on the bump. I used to. I don't anymore. Why? I hooked myself up with some Hotronic XLPC foot warmers in my ski boots. If you've had Hotronics before, you should know that the updated C-Series is the best on the market, with a new, larger anatomical shape, but with smaller, lighter batteries that perform in temperatures down to 22 degrees below zero. Sound familiar, New England? Or, if you're looking for a less intrusive solution, consider Hotronic XLP heated socks. These socks offer the best size to capacity ratio and longevity on the market, with up to 18 hours of continuous heating power. And they will fit into your existing ski boots without issue. And here's a cool feature. This new generation of Hotronics products is Bluetooth enabled, meaning you can manage them from the Hotronic heat app on your phone. It's time to ditch the tough guy mentality. Skiing should not be an exercise in managing discomfort. Hook yourself up with Hotronics, boot warmers, or heated socks this ski season. Click the link in the banner on the podcast article to get started. And when you do set up those boots with Hotronics, if you're buying new boots, please, please don't order them from Amazon. I know a lot of you are DIY types, but one thing you should never do is fit your own ski boots. Trust me on this, go to a trained professional. And might I suggest, as that trained professional, the team at The Pro Ski and Ride in Hunter, New York. The Pro Ski and Ride is a full service ski and snowboard shop providing specialty services and equipment to skiers and riders from across the US. You know how I first heard about the pros at the Pro Ski and Ride? I was on a ski club trip with a guy from New Jersey who had heard about the pro from a skier based in Utah. And he said to me, 
how good does a boot fitter from New York have to be that a guy in Utah uses him? So I made an appointment. That was several years ago, and I've been going back ever since. Go to theproscanride.com to book an online appointment with Kathy or Gio today. They will help you to identify the perfect boots, set you up with custom footbeds, or even adjust boots that you bought elsewhere. My wife, also the editor of the Storm Skiing Podcast, battled boot pain for years. We finally took her boots to the pro, which we bought elsewhere, by the way, and on our recent trip out west, after the adjustments, she was more comfortable and confident than she's ever been. Stop fighting with your boots and stop suffering on the slopes. Make your appointment with the Pro Ski and Ride at theproskiandride.com today. The place is just a few minutes down the road from Hunter Mountain, so if you have an Epic Pass, you can stop in for a few turns to test your new boots out right away and then stop right back in for any adjustments. All right, big thanks to all my partners. Episode 157, John Schaefer, owner and general manager of Berkshire East and Catamount. Of all the ski states in America, Massachusetts may have the highest proportion of lost ski areas. 172 ski areas that once spun lifts in the state are now defunct, according to the New England Lost Ski Areas Project, compared with just 13 that remain active today. And we're not just talking about the death of little rope toe bumps spinning in farmers' backyards powered by an old Model T engine. We're talking about well-established ski areas with multiple chairlifts, places like Mount Tom, Brody, and Ski Blandford that survived into the modern era and ran for decades and decades, but couldn't quite make it to today. This is a tough neighborhood, is my point here, and it takes a special mentality to make skiing work in Massachusetts. Surprisingly, given the importance of SkiMad Boston to the regional and national ski scenes, not a single ski area in the state is owned by one of the big conglomerates. Instead, you have a collection of mostly family-owned ski areas that are among the most modern in New England, with sophisticated snowmaking and lift infrastructure, and a deep understanding of how to make skiing work under the toughest circumstances. I'm talking about places like Jiminy Peak and Wachusett and Butternut. Among this group of rough-and-tumble owners are the Schaefers, who have run Berkshire East, Massachusetts since the late 1970s, and who added nearby Catamount, which straddles the New York-Massachusetts border, about five years ago. As you know, I talk to a lot of ski area operators, and hearing the story of multi-generational, family-owned mountains has really, over time, become one of my favorite sorts of podcasts. And John Schaefer is one of the best representatives of this sort of business that you are ever going to find. The dude is original, he's authentic, he's thoughtful, he's unfiltered, and he has no one to answer to but you, his skiers, and his family. This, thanks to John, is the storm at its best. Let's go. My guest today is the owner and general manager of Berkshire East and Catamount Ski Resorts. With a 1,180-foot vertical drop on 180 acres of terrain, Berkshire East is the tallest and largest ski area in Massachusetts. Catamount, which rises 1,000 vertical feet, is one of just four ski areas in the United States to straddle a state border, sitting partially in Massachusetts and New York. Since purchasing the ski area in 2018, his family has installed three new-use chairlifts, 
added a new base lodge and substantially modernized the snowmaking system, among many other improvements. The Schaefer family has owned and operated Burt Shear East since 1978. He is also, in my opinion, one of the most original thinkers in skiing and a very good friend of the storm, making his third appearance on the podcast. John Schaefer is my guest. John, incredible to have you back. I know how much you have going on, especially in December, so I always appreciate the time. How you doing, John? How's life? I'm doing all right. Very generous with your words, but um, got a little cold going on right now, so apologize the deeper voice, but hang it in there. What about yourself? I'm, I'm doing great, John. I skied the last two days. I was up in oh, New nice. Hampshire. I mean, it is full-on winter in northern New England, and I don't get too much into the El Nino, La Nina cycles, but this appears to be, from what I saw in New Hampshire over the past couple of days, I hit Cannon and Bretton Woods. This, to me, is the best early season I've seen in New England since 2018 when we had that big snowvember. What's it look like in Massachusetts from your point of view? Um, I would say pretty typical, maybe a couple extra snowmaking nights. Um, we usually get that mid-November cold blast, which I think showed up a hair later this year. Catamount was able to, we, we tested the system a couple of times in really early November, but that those are just system tests. So I think Berkshire East, we had five nights under our belt by opening weekend, which is pretty solid and pretty typical. Catamount a couple more nights, which shockingly, even though they're further south due to the, the topography of where Berkshire East sits, it's more of a valley versus Catamount, which is a, it's a larger mountain near the Hudson. So the cool air is able to get there sooner than Berkshire East. Takes a little bit more to get weather in. So I would say good and fairly typical good you know we would have appreciated a little bit colder cold snaps but we'll take it and cut them out open november 30th and berkshire east a couple days later and we've had a good positive start so it's maybe typical weather but it's not typical opening dates if you look at the past three seasons before this one you hadn't been able to get the mountains open until the latter half of december in general i mean that november 30th opening for catamount tied the earliest opening for that ski area since at least 2002, according to what I can find online. If you look, yeah, if you look in particular at Catamount and and actually Catamount opened on November 30th and Berkshire East on December 2nd, but Catamount in particular, I mean, how much of that early opening was just good weather luck? How much of that was a reflection of all the work that you've put into the place since buying it five years ago and those huge snowmaking upgrades? So I would order it this way. I would say, number one, it was the team of people that pulled together to get the job done and to do it effectively and quickly. Early season snowmaking, can, you can't have any gaps on the hill and you can't have any delays in getting going. And so there's a level of coordination, understanding the best practices, et cetera, that go into it. Uh, two is, you know, definitely the investments into the good system. I would call the modern high pressure, really able to concentrate firepower with no gaps on, on multiple trails across the mountain. And, you know, lastly, the weather, uh, the weather, it, it's a constant, right? You know, it's, it's like the, it's Goldilocks. It's too, it's never right. It's never warm enough. It's never cold enough. It's, it's always something that you're just dealing with, but the first two combined to overcome the latter. And, and, and if I may, Stuart, it, the November 30th 
opening of that Thursday was intentional. We were targeting November and I haven't really been had the opportunity and this is it to say much about catamount, but it's, it's, we're really sort of, the boat is now planing and it, okay, you know, with, with good weather and, and a good runway to a good season, we're just fingers crossed for a nice, peaceful, exciting winter on the slopes of just good skiing, you know, lots of fun, et cetera. So this is the first time that you've actually opened in your five years, opened catamount before Berkshire. So it was a couple years mm-hmm. when you open them on the same day. Uh, how significant is that? Is that a reflection of your intentions going forward? Is that, again, just sort of everything coming together? It, d- does that reflect your construction project at Berkshire East that we'll get into in a moment here? I mean, what's what's about, what should we read into that opening of Catamount two days before Berkshire East? Uh, Berkshire, yeah, that was, well, I would say healthy competition, you know, amongst family members. So number okay. one. Number two, Berkshire East could have opened. Uh, we were preserving driving access to the summit and base of the new ski lift. And so we needed every second to get machinery, parts and pieces in and out of both locations before closing off the access roads. So, you know, it's I, I call it on the go forward basis, just good, healthy competition amongst friends. You know, there's no there's no favorite child, but the push is on to open and to be available for customers to come enjoy themselves. And then also just experientially. I mean, if you miss these windows early season, you're not done, but you're behind. And so you need to have that snow down. I would say eight out of 10 years, you're keeping it through whatever December warmup we're having. And then that becomes critical snow for the holiday season. So you're really just missing it if you don't get it. So that, that competition comment is interesting, John. You've always struck me as a very hands-on manager and someone who likes to be on the hill and be involved. How have you been able to, if you have, kind of step back and let the teams go and maybe just set expectations rather than being right there in the mix? Um, so this year, so the last two to three years, I've spent most of my falls on some long hours at Catamount. And... Berkshire East has had to not fend for itself because there's some really talented people there, but been able to maintain a little more institutional knowledge. So the group of people that built this Berkshire East snowmaking system, and I call it, you know, Berkshire East snowmaking is somewhere along the the old Trans Am that blows the the doors off the new sports car, you know, at the stop right. line, and then Catamount was really a ground up rebuild. You know, the things we wanted to do with that snowmaking system just weren't possible with the aging infrastructure. And I would call that experience like wandering out into the desert under the hot sun and searching for this papyrus and you finally get it and it falls <laughs> apart in your hands. You know, that's that's right. what the last three years of life of rebuilding Catamount has been like. You think you got it and it falls apart. Right. And so <laughs> this last year, somewhere in about January or February, we brought our last snowmaking pump online, and it didn't really get much fanfare. Uh, the last new modification, it, it might—I think it might have even been late February. But the team there in the off season did a lot of testing, a lot of scenario training, a lot of preparation work, and I, and I would say so much of what snowmaking is is just getting things right before the moment you turn them on. You know, if you go to a snow gun, did the do you have enough, is the hose there? You know, that's step one. 
is there power there? You know, are, are all the basics in play? And this year, both mountains really understood what they were trying to do. And I felt kind of like the first time ever I was at Berkshire East on our first big night of snowmaking. And I showed up, I was off doing something. I showed up at five in all my, on all my gear, ready to go out and get things going. And I pull in and everything was going and they sent me home. (laughs) And I was like, what the hell? You know, like this is, a lot of my identity is wrapped up in these moments and Uh I don't even, you guys don't need me anymore. Like what's going on here. And, uh, so I, I definitely was excited when somebody asked me to drive a snow gun up the mountain in my pickup truck. And then I went home and so, you know, I, I don't, I, I don't know if I answered your question or not, but it's, it's preparation, teamwork, and training, you know, as well as having the right tools to do the job. I mean, you, you have such an interesting story as someone who, like I said, your family's been running the ski area since 1978. I'm not sure if you were alive when they came from Michigan to Massachusetts. I was born in 80. Know... Okay. Okay. So, so you grew up at Berkshire East, right? Mm-hmm. And you ran the mountain as a kid, I'm sure, and know every inch of it and took it over from your father at some point. And you seem to really grab that bull by the horns and and really drive it into the modern age. As this thing scales up and as you take on another ski resort and more responsibilities, it's healthy to hand things off to other people and to trust the team. But it's also got to be hard. And and like you just said, it's a big part of your identity. So how, how do you handle that identity transition where you're going from John on the mountain, owning the mountain to kind of John, the CEO of this thing that has to make sure everything's going, but can't possibly be everywhere all at once, even if you still can do some of that stuff some of the time. I mean, how do you how do you recalibrate yourself to that new identity and, and, and maybe try to embrace it? One step at a time. I mean, last night, and this happens a lot, right? So the the physical aspect of being present on the mountain or being in the mix is is important to me because there is you know i think best when i'm moving or working or just being physically productive you know digging a hole or pulling out a snow gun hose or doing whatever that's that's kind of where my mind calms down last night you know i would say the ceo version of that was i drove my truck to the top of the mountain so I didn't have to get into the day-to-day issues that are going on. You know, let's say building a new ski lift or running a ski area. There, there is a chain of command of that. And I parked and I hiked down the mountain and hiked back up fully incognito, but checking out everything that's going on. So in terms of, you know, replacing the physicality of the work that it does take to run a ski area, that's how I replace that. And I try to, I, my boots are worn out because every day I throw my skis on my shoulder when we're working or when we're open and I hike straight up the mountain and ski back down and check things out. And that's, it's, I would say some of this stuff is similar to, you know, walking a golf course versus driving it. You know, you see, you can think about your shot when you're walking, you see what's going on, you, you feel the wind. If you just drive up and you know, see ball, hit ball and keep moving. There's certain things people say you miss of the experience. And I'd say the same is extremely true about operating a skiria. 
in terms of the mental aspect of just organization and you know operating at a CEO level, it's 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 really good to have a good team around you because they make you look better. And you know, hopefully you work hard in the best interests of your team and in your entity, and then you, you develop a, a good organization that people want to be part of and allow good people to do good work and to keep that positive energy going forward. So it's it's complicated and then it's not all at once. You know, I don't want to sound by like Forrest Gump, but I guess that's all I have to say about that, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's it's one thing to take over the family ski area and to transform Berkshire East, which is a very different mountain than it was 25 years ago. And I think it's the reputation among skiers is that it's the best mountain, skiers mountain in Massachusetts. And I think you did a really nice job shaping that. It's another thing when you start to scale up the business, right? And in 2018, mm -hmm. you buy Catamount. In 2019, COVID hits. You start consulting at Biscay and Hermitage Club. Uh, you're, you're increasing volumes from what I can see at both ski areas. I mean, do you ever, did you ever feel at that point like you were trying to do too much? And, and ultimately, how were you able to manage all that? Yeah, I mean, there was a lot. <laughs> my, my family certain wondered, certainly wondered what I was doing, you know, particularly on late night hermitage board calls. But, um, you know, it's, it's also, you balance that against being humble and reminding yourself that you're lucky to be doing what you're doing at all times and understanding that it, it could be a lot worse, right? And, and that all you have to do is work hard and keep moving forward. And that's what I try to do. And I remain thankful for the opportunity, thankful for the life that my family gets to live, and thankful for the people that I have working with me. And especially the customers um, that come to appreciate what we're trying to do, which is not for everybody, but for the folks that do come, hopefully they have a good experience. And if, if you keep those things in mind, then um, I think you quickly realize that whatever problem you've got, um, particularly if you're following world events, that uh, mm -hmm. you're doing okay. I mean, was there a moment in all that when you felt overwhelmed, like you had to get some help? And, and, and if so, how did you go about that? How did you go about because, again, you, you strike me as a very hands on guy. You like to be involved, like to feel available to your team but you just can't do everything at once. So was there a moment when you were just like, you know, I need to distribute things a bit more and, and ultimately how did you handle that? Um, I think certain, some, during some of those busy times, everybody was busy. So the problem I always had was keeping the straight face for your team okay. mm -hmm. and, you know, sailing into every problem, looking sternly and confidently ahead knowing that you were sailing into rough waters. That was the, that was the tougher point. Um, the work is the work, you know, it'll never end. And some days are harder than others. And that's just the inevitability of life. But being the leader in tougher moments may just mean you got to keep your mouth shut and work hard as hard as you possibly can, uh, knowing that you're going to get through it. And, you know, that's why, people write good literature, I guess, you know, and you, you can read a good book or listen to a good podcast or appreciate a good sunrise because that might be all you got to get through it. 
I mean, from the from the list of responsibilities that you have, it, it's not something that I would guess you have a lot of time for leisurely reading and and taking hikes and whatever. But you do have little kids, and and you do have a, a range of interests. I mean, how do you, with all this stuff you have going on, how much time do you make for shutting off work and doing other things for your mind, for your family, for your soul, for your heart? How how do you make time for those, and how much time do you make for it? Well, one, it's a good team, right? So if I have a good team handling the responsibilities of the mountain, then they, they allow me the, the time to do that. In terms of personal, say, fitness and exercise, that's, that is where I do the best in terms of thinking. So I'll go on a mountain bike ride. I, I live right at Berkshire East, and we have great public trail network that essentially leaves from my house, which okay. is also so slightly not an accident. Not an accident. <laughs> <laughs> um. So I can blow off for an hour or two, you know, and and generally we'll do that three or four times a, a week during the summer. We have a relentless chocolate lab who's 11 months old who has required an hour long or half hour long trail run almost every day. And that keeps the home life a little less crazy because if I tire them out, so that's been healthy and good. Uh, the kids are a huge priority and I always try to make space for those two and my wife. And they fortunately like the things that, you know, we do. So this summer we were out kayaking on the river quite a bit and sit on tops, um, which are appropriate for their age group, but then also teaching them to mountain bike, hike, be outside. We have a pretty extensive garden. So my girls and I in the spring and summer will wake up really, really early. And, you know, we planted 700 strawberries this year. We've got 50 blueberries, a ton of raspberries, and a fairly well-developed backyard gardening system. And we do a lot of that together. So, you know, you just plow ahead, I guess. I hear you have a rope toe in the backyard too, John. I do have a rope toe. Yeah. <laughs> do, do the girls know how to use that? Are they allowed to use that by themselves? Oh, yeah. That was a that was a COVID. We homeschooled during COVID, and my wife okay. would just push them out the door, and uh, they would go ski, you know, during lunch breaks. <laughs> Do you have guns back there too? We have a gun. It's at the ski area um, to get revamped, but I've always been a little hesitant to hit my well that hard. Okay. Um, <laughs> and we have a we have a nice north slope, so we can get we can ski usually December through March, you okay. know, pretty consistently. Uh-huh. Do you have to groom it? No, but my buddy Gary has a uh, another rope toe that's got a little more pine tree hill. It's got a little more elevation and steeps than we do, and he has a groomer. So okay. I have the north slope, but he has the groomer, so we always debate when he should groom to set up a hard foundation. What's your vertical in your backyard? Uh, Maybe 150, 200 feet. Do the girls just like to take laps? Do they build little kickers? Like, What's their what's their deal back there? They take a ton of laps and they play, okay. I, you know, during COVID their first year with the rope toe, I, I would say that I learned more about skiing by watching my family and their friends. So my girls and their friends ski and play in the backyard mm -hmm. than I have through most of my life of being around ski resorts. Really? Yeah. There's something about the play aspect of skiing at big ski areas that's gone and the joy. Okay. Um, and freedom of the sport. If you think about sort of the history of you go on the New England Lost Skiria website and just look at the high volume of rope toes that were around New England. And those are basically farmers or towns or families with a backyard rope toe run off a tractor. And 
kids would go out and play. And that's where a lot of the roots of skiing came from in the United States. And now those kids are being developed through pretty commercialized properties. And there is, there is something different and it's not something it's, you kind of have to see it to understand it, but there is a joy and a thoughtlessness to how they use the property, the rope toe and the terrain that doesn't exist at a normal ski area. And it makes you think about ways you can try to bring that back. And I wouldn't say that we've, we've done a good job cracking that code, but I do see at Berkshire East, you know, on a weekend, you know, on our opening Saturday, I didn't have, I'm sure it was at most mountains, but you just see the packs of kids roaming around the mountain, exploring together. And mm-hmm. that that's a bit of it, right? But there's still something else around the rope toe because on the lift, you lose the continuity with the snow. And, and even just from a skiing development standpoint, you know, if you go ski on a rope toe for an hour, you never stop articulating your ankles, adjusting your line. As you go up and down the pitch, pushing against the, a side fall line, you know, that helps ankle pronation and knee angulation and hip placement. And so from a raw skier development standpoint, it's really good for kids and families as well. You know, I took a tour last winter of the Midwest and I skied a bunch of small ski areas in Wisconsin, Minnesota, and Michigan. And what I was really impressed by that I haven't seen anywhere else is these high speed rope toes. Yeah. And I was talking to some of the guys who run the ski areas out there. And these things, John, they move 4,000 skiers an hour. Yeah. They cost $50,000 to put in. And I left there wondering, why is this only a Midwest thing? Because this makes so much sense to me for so many reasons. I mean, the cross of new chairlifts is skyrocketing. The park kids don't care about anything but the park. So why not? And that's what these basically serve is the park, right? And that's, I mean, talk about play. Those kids are just having the time of their lives, taking 50 laps a day, yeah. it takes pressure off the chairlifts. So why aren't we seeing these in New England? And have you thought about putting them in at your ski areas? We've talked a lot about it and we, we actually have hoarded a couple of them. Really? Um, we've got some old T-bars and rope toes sort of in cold okay. storage and okay. we've, we've considered it in different spots. It's just, it's like the horizon though. You, you think you're getting someplace and it always seems to get a little further away. There's a keeping up with the Joneses aspect of skiing that goes back a long time. And there's a mountain nearby here called the Berkshire Snow Basin, which the Western Mass Backcountry Alliance is working to reopen. It was it was built, I think, in the 30s by a couple of ski racers, actually maybe in the just post-war, um, Ruth and Stan Brown. Uh, Stan Brown was a, was a World War II 10th Mountain guy, um, and there was a lot of them around here. And he had an article in the early 60s where he was lamenting the installation of a chairlift. I think it was at Jiminy or Brody. And he had rope toes and T-bars. And he said people care more about how they go up the mountain than they do going down the mountain. And this is going to ruin the sport. Um, Or if he didn't say that, that, I think that was essentially the intent of the quote. And I've thought a lot about that. And it's true. I mean, your point's right. I mean, uphill capacity is equally as high if not greater on those high-speed rope toes but you know honestly if we just had a, a high test snowmaking system and rope toes at berkshire east I, I mean i'm certain we would not have a business right now so you have to have a bit of everything i was in you know and particularly on higher angle mountains so i was i used to spend quite a bit of time in new zealand uh ski racing 
in a lot of the club fields there, which are smaller club operated, essentially like little extreme skiing mountains way up in the Southern Alps are operated off of rope toes. And, you know, first of all, you drive up to these little huts on the scariest roads you can ever imagine, outsloped, icy <laughs> things through avalanche chutes. And then they give you the the old um, nutcracker hip belt to hold on to these high-speed rope toes that are going up like a 30-degree angle, up essentially <laughs> avalanche chutes to get to the top of the mountain. Right. And your hand basically just gets mashed through every set of wheels. I mean, it's awesome, but it's, it's a tough right. experience, you know, and I'm not certain people want to work that hard to earn their turns right now. <laughs> Maybe not in America. I, I find yeah. there's a different mentality in the Southern Hemisphere in Europe that, where surface lifts are still pretty prominent. Yeah. Yeah. And it's definitely a cost structure. I mean, it's hard. It's hard to do this stuff. It's hard to build a lift up a mountain in Chile or, you know, some random base in the Southern Alps. You have to bring concrete and electrical. There's a lot of infrastructure required to operate a ski area. And that's a challenge. So lots of different ways that you can build a lift fleet. And it seems like you're trying a bunch of different ones. Let's talk about the T-Bar Express here, John. You have been at work on the first high-speed quad at, well, if, if you want to count Hermitage, it's not your first high-speed quad, but the first one that you've built Mm -hmm. at a resort that you've been involved in. You're calling this the T-Bar Express. This will run, for folks familiar with Berkshire, it runs basically parallel to the Summit Quad, that nice Skytrack fixed quad that you built just in 2014, not even a decade ago. So take us through this, John. What's the exact line of the T-Bar Express? And why did you decide to build the first high-speed quad at Berkshire East and and why did you build it where it is? In reverse order, we built it where it is because that's where it could go. Um, we weren't going to take down our lifts, our existing lifts, which might have been a logical choice, at least on the on the surface, uh, because of the the mountain biking. So then, you know, I basically did a bit of an exercise last fall, which was to reveal where it could go. I isolated where it couldn't go and made a map and just laid out various lines and looked at the issues, you know, whether fall lines, the slope of the hill, uh, where towers would fall, where the base terminals would go, what ski under heights were, and basically ended up on the old T-bar line, which is why it's it's called the T-bar. You know, with the, mm. the trail is competition, but everybody calls it T-bar because that's where one of the first lifts went in. And to your point on rope toes and T-bars, it was a T-bar. And we grew up on it. I think in the mid eighties, it finally came out, but by the end, there'd only be one T left on the, you'd have to wait, you know, for the, <laughs> let all the broken T's go by. And then you got on the one that didn't, <laughs> that actually worked. Okay. And I barely remember it. I mean, okay. real little kid. And it's going, I mean, it's smack dab right on top of it. And you find that a lot at Skiriots. It's like, oh man, what mm -hmm. should we do? And then boom, you find yourself building something right where the founders had put something and you're like, Oh yeah, right. they weren't, you know, they weren't nuts. This is, this, is, this makes a lot of sense. And so where they didn't get it right was at the summit. So this lets out a little further back and I mean, maybe 10 feet of vertical above the, the sky track, but it, it distributes skiers across the top of the mountain a lot better. So we've been stuck in a couple of pathways 
for 50 years. And now we can distribute people almost 360 degrees around the get off point. And, you know, you can go straight to beginner, left to intermediate, right to black diamond. And basically distribute skiers right from the get off out onto the mountain. And so I think from a design standpoint, it may, though it may not be perfect, it does accentuate some of the qualities of the resort a lot better. So I'm, I'm looking forward to that. So you've long been skeptical of the advantages of a high-speed lift over a fixed-grip lift. They're more expensive to install. A high-speed quad doesn't move any more skiers per hour than a, a fixed-grip quad. The grips are super expensive to maintain. And, and this is all stuff you've said on the record and such yeah. columns, et cetera. What changed your mind? Um, Stan Brown in 1962. Meaning? People care more about how they get up the mountain than how they get down it. <laughs> <laughs> so so cust- pressure from customers? No, I, I think evolution of the, our resorts. You know, there's things that aren't appropriate at particular times and other things that are. And I think we, we hit this moment where we needed to break through another ceiling. And there's certain qualities to the mountain that are great. And then there's certain ones that aren't. And some of them are is... You know, in a high high speed world, you can't knock out twenty runs in two hours, and that is important to people. And if you look at Berkshire East where it sits, I mean, we're said we're sixteen miles off Route ninety one, and there's really no direct competition. You know, if you draw a circle, it's not like Catamount. You can't look across the valley and sort of see you know where Butternut is. It's, you know, that's like a tale of two cities. Berkshire East is it's everybody else that's off ninety one and we're proximate. We have that going for us, but our, or our competition is deep. You go north and you hit Stratton, Okemo, Killington, Sugarbush, basically every big mountain in New England. It's a competitive environment. And we felt that in order to compete, we needed to have a higher level of service. And at the end of the day, it's, it's volume of runs and quality of scheme that matters. So we attacked this problem at Berkshire East and we'll see how it goes. So you have two competing tensions at Berkshire East, and this is my outsider's peanut gallery point of view, so correct me if I'm wrong here. You have your hardcore Berkshire skier. These are the folks who have been coming to you for decades. They've always known it's a great mountain. They have always known it's different, and they've always known that it skis more like a southern Vermont mountain than a Massachusetts mountain just with your snowfall patterns and your terrain. So you have that group, and and you have to keep that group happy because they are your family in, in a sense. Your other group is the folks who have discovered Berkshire East in the last several years. And, and, and maybe the Indy Pass is driving that. Maybe it's just, uh, maybe it's COVID outdoor boom. Maybe it's, you know, you can probably tell me what it is. And I, I want to relay an interesting conversation I had on your summit quad a few years ago. And I, I believe this was 2019 and I'm, I'm riding up with this guy and he's like, oh, where are you from? And I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm from Brooklyn. He's like, oh, well, <laughs> Brooklyn people already ruined Platykill. It's so like, don't go tell anyone about Berkshire East. And uh, I'm, I'm sorry to tell that guy uh, that I, I do, in fact, talk about Berkshire East quite a bit. Um, and that was before I, I had a platform is when I had that conversation. So I'm really curious, John, what the vibe has been among your locals. Are they happy to see, okay, now I can make you know 30 runs at Berkshire in, this, in the time I used to make 20? Or are they saying, John, you're giving away the secret. This has been our spot. And now you're going to ruin it with too many people. What's the reaction been like among your local folks? I think people are pretty fired up. Good. They see the benefits. I mean, there's a level when you're 
when you run a local business that it is the place that everyone loves to hate. <laughs> and I, I mean that the same, you laughed, that was a joke, but everybody has an opinion, right? Right. And it's my job to listen to them and talk to people. It's, it's all good. So beyond just the chatter, if you step back that our customer base understands and appreciates what we're trying to do. And I think part of what we've been able to do is, is share some of the struggles and to wear them outwardly so that people feel like they're coming along for the ride. You know, it's a community. It's not just a, a carnival fair ride. You know, we're, we're developing a story and a narrative that, that stretches back a long ways. So people ride the lift. They also ride the experience of being part of the customer base and the extended family. And, and look, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a part of growth that things change. And I'll also say that if, if you don't change, then other things are going to change around you. They may ultimately and probably will cannibalize you and those very same customers you're talking about. And so if you don't cannibalize or change yourself, then somebody else will. And, you know, you just got to be open to open about it. So I think here, you know, on this one, look, these folks have busy lives, too, and they're they're no different than the Brooklyn person. And they probably feel more ownership and insider type feelings but they can knock out 20 runs too you know between yeah. 10 and 11 30 and that's going to be awesome it's going to change a lot so one opinion in particular that i'm curious about is uh, in regards to this new lift is that of roy schaefer your father the savior from my understanding of berkshire east back in the 70s who mm -hmm. took it from basically a backwater declining business you look at the number of ski areas that have gone out of business in massachusetts and it's Absolutely mind blowing. I mean, there's a dozen active ski areas and, and probably 200 or more lost ones. So your dad really by scraping by and and we talked about this last time you were on the podcast, prioritizing used equipment wherever he could. Most of the chairlifts on Berkshire East have been relocated from elsewhere up until you bought that new Skytrack back in 2014. Now you have this high speed lift. What's your dad's take? I mean, and, and how much... How much do you seek his opinion as you look to evolve the business? And, and and is it is it more like looking for guidance or is it more helping him understand how the business is evolving? I'm, I'm just curious about that whole dynamic and how he's reacted because he built this business in a, you know, using a certain model. And, and you obviously still see the benefit of new used lifts. You put in a bunch of catamount, yep. but you're evolving in a different direction in Berkshire East and, and not doing it haphazardly i think you're doing it in a very thoughtful way but just really curious about how you know what your dad's opinion is and how he fits in in this whole thing uh he's supportive he has his concerns but you know he's not standing up a picket line <laughs> <laughs> i think he sees the logic in what we're doing you know at the hundred thousand foot level i think at a, at a micro level you know, he wonders about this or that. He lives here. He, he travels a bit more than he used to. So he's here and he, I think he feels good about the work we're, we're working to achieve. He feels good about the growth, but also I think he has trepidations about the overall lifestyle and how hard it can be and the, the time commitments. So I would say is his more concern. He's more concerned about his grandkids and making certain that they are I'd say he's got his priorities right, you know, and staying out of the minutia of day-to-day -day operations and looking at the big picture and paying attention to the grandkids and, you know, having fun where he and my mom can. 
I mean, how important is it from that family point of view that you live on the mountain? I was, I was talking to Davey Ratchford who runs Snow Basin and he was in sports business and he said it was just taking over his life. So he switched to skiing. Yeah. I said, well, Davey, you know, no one's ever described skiing to me as, as a career with a good work-life balance. He said, yes, but it, with skiing, you can have your family involved. And he doesn't live at Snow Basin and, and obviously it's a whole different thing and owned by a big company. Yeah. But you live at Berkshire. I mean, how much are you, how much does that help with being able to see your girls? I mean, do they just kind of own the mountain on Saturdays and Sundays and run around? And are you able to spend more time with them because you have that set up? Well, I'd like to say that they, they are users of the mountain and hopefully they don't project any entitled <laughs> entitledness to the resort. But uh, yeah, they, they put their boots on when I leave the race team starts at nine. They usually uh, have their boots on by eight twenty in the morning and are ready to go. And okay. it's easy because I can shoot home and grab them if I'm there early or I can swing down and drop them off. Um, you know, or even drive up to the top and drop them off so they can get an early run in the morning before, you know, on their way down to meet everybody. So, look, it's got its benefits for sure. There's definitely an aspect of not only being president of the hair club, you're also a member. And yeah. so there's a relentlessness to some of the chatter and the experience that gets, it's hard. You know, you can have the best night of snowmaking, right? And I like to be out there and it's important to lead from the front on these things. I, at least I think so. And really make certain, like if you go to a new tra trail, make certain there's no gaps and that things are running at a peak efficiency. And it's tiring and it's exhausting. And so that's a great night. But you still have to walk through your, your lodge the next next day and, and put a new face on, which is one that reflects openness, positivity, and being there and being part of the community. So if you're tired you really can't bring any baggage in or if conversely if you have a rough ex <clears throat> experience walking into it you're still putting on the same brave face and going and talking to everybody and that's where it's hard and i, I think personality types play into that you know i you can fake it to an extent but if you're not if you're if someone's a little introverted or it, it becomes a little harder so those are the challenges that i that i think exist you know i i think it's 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 sort of like logarithmically more complicated if you also own the mountain because then you're just layering it layering on more and more you know if i if this were just a job i, I always joke like one day i'll retire and get a normal job <laughs> <laughs> so you know it just it is what it is so then you're just thankful that you have the opportunities and you're able to give the opportunities that you do so yeah. Well, always, always forward. Yeah. It yeah. seems like you're always <laughs> moving forward. So uh, back to the lift for a moment here, John, how did construction go? When do you hope to open this thing? I'd like to think that the Poma guys want to be home for the holidays, but I think we're all working towards that goal. There's no official date yet. These things are subject to change. They're complex pieces of machinery. Part of me that are dependent on, um, you know, a lot of things coming together at once, but I, I'd like to say we're on track. I've learned not to predict lift openings. In the construction standpoint, I mean, from May 15th to November 15th, we had 26 weekends. We had only six clear weekends. And on those mm -hmm. weekends, we had 10 inches more rain just on weekends than we would wow. have had on a typical average summer. So to say it was wet and muddy, you know, was an understatement. It was the second wettest summer in Massachusetts ever. So it was a muddy, wet, 
slog to get to where we're at, but I think we're basically on track and everybody's happy about it. So regardless of when it opens, the setup is going to be, and the trail map will be on the article that accompanies this podcast on stormskiing.com. But you you have the summit quad, that sky track you put in 2014. That's a carpet loaded yeah. fixed grip lift. You're going to have the T-bar express, and then you have the mountain triple and those all run more or less parallel and, and, and they do have slightly different lines, but what's the plan for those lifts this season, as far as what you're going to run when, and long-term, what's your plan for those three lifts? Because I have to imagine you don't necessarily need 11 seats going on the same line. Yeah. For this year, it's backup. And, you know, unless we have a direct plan, it, it may be the same for next year. So we didn't feel forced into, and still do not feel forced into making any sort of decision around either the triple or the summit quad. We just don't have to. We have the north facing development potential. And, and one of those two lifts will go there and hopefully sooner rather than later because it means the T-bar quad had some sort of impact or continued efforts had some sort of impact on our customer basis or base. But we, we don't have to make a decision, so I'm not making that decision. So I, I don't know yet, but we, you know, we'll, we'll announce them when we do. The, the plans you submitted to the town showed the Mountain Triple moving over onto that expansion that you just referenced on the north side. T- tell us about that expansion, John. This has been in the works for a long time, sort of moved in fits and starts. You had hoped to get this online, I think, by now. Just tell us about this expansion what sort of vertical acreage trails we would have over there and how that plan has progressed and when maybe what kind of timeline you could give us and when we could see it. So it is, I I would put it in the category of it's there and we decided to get our house in order before we went there and getting your house in order to Skiria means opening your resort fast because if you, if you layer on additional snowmaking, and you can't do a good job with what you have, then all you're going to do is just have a series of brown trails, at least where we are, in February. And I just refuse to do that. You know, you, you, you measure nine times and cut once. And so we have gone on a efficiency and snowmaking renovation kick on the existing terrain at Berkshire East, which I think people are starting, starting to see the, the rationality for. And then wanted to leave the lift infrastructure in great shape, which I think we are. And from there, now we have an excess lift, call it the triple. We have improved snowmaking, improved it dramatically. And we're probably now ready to approach the the cliff jump to get into that that section. But we're going to have to recover from the installation of this lift a little bit. It's, It's invasive to build a lift. There's a lot of infrastructure that changes. A lot of things to figure out, a lot of new snowmaking to put in place, and and it's expensive. So we're going to have to see this one through, and then uh, we'll figure out where we're going next after that. Do you own the land that you want to expand onto? Oh, yeah. We could could build it. I could build it now. The permits are all in place. How many trails are over there? What kind of trail and what kind of terrain? I call it four and a half trails. I'd say it models very similarly on on a smaller level to the gondola side of Stowe. So I always like skiing over there because it, it's like a series of figure eights that, that sort of loop down upon one another. So you have a lot of optionality. You can start, you know, you can 
bends to the right. You can see across the trail over on the left and zig and zag your way down. In reality, there's what? Just a handful of trails that interact at a couple of nodes on the way down. And this has a similar feel. It's intermediate terrain. There's a couple of steep, very steep drops. There's some, some greens that are involved. We built Thunder a few years ago. You can think about it as the city building the, the interstate on-ramp and exit ramp before they build the interstate. Um, okay. So that's the way in to the zone. It's the way out of the zone. And it's, it's awesome. It, it would expand. It would be three or four intermediate trails that are awesome terrain. And rolling, undulating, always moving, you know, new new aspects and new lines all the way down. And I think it's it's very similar to that section of snow. So the perception among skiers is that Berkshire East has gotten quite a bit busier over the last several years. And you're always a top 10 Indy Pass resort for number of redemptions in the whole country. And at this point, they have 130 Alpine partners. Curious if the, well, first of all, it, are you getting busier? Is that true? And, and, and what do you attribute that to? And and as far as this, these infrastructure upgrades, the T-Bar Express, this potential expansion, are these responses to that increased volume and attempts to control it? Yeah. So kind of back to the lift question, we are getting busier. I do think I'm very optimistic about this high-speed quad turning over skiers faster. I mean, I can't, I know my kids will be there for eight hours, but I can't fathom. You're, you're going to get a lot of value in three hours of skiing. So similar to right. watch who sit blocks. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I can't wait to see the person that does 70 runs, you know, in 10 hours <laughs> at Berkshire East. Right. And so I think there is a, there's a version of this story because the uphill capacities are the same. I mean, there's, there's no, mm-hmm. there's no change. Yeah. You're just moving the equation from butts in a chair to butts on the ground, whether they're in a line or in a, on the hill. Mm-hmm. And I think people are going to blow through the resort faster. Okay. So there is a, a modeling scenario that I've worked on that there's a chance this thing actually quiets down a little bit at any given moment. I mean, well, every ski area has its days, right? And those are the ones yeah. that you're, you're held accountable to. It's the mega lift line at whatever conglomerate day. And, and you've got those, but probably 98% of the time, that's not the experience. So yeah, we're, we're getting busier. It's a response to the growth we've done and the work we've done. I also, you know, quite frankly, I was there in the 80s too, when there was death cookies the size of your knee and <laughs> there were cats broken down all over the mountain and the, the old chairlifts used to derail every weekend. So, you know, I've I, I've seen it, lived it, worked it. And, you know, Berkshire's a great mountain and we make good snow. Catamount's a great mountain. You'll see that develop and, and hopefully we've sort of just knocked the top off the the sand pyramid on the beach and you can grow the base wider and build it taller, you know? You know, Berkshire's a, a great ski area and, and I, I mean this question respectfully. Did, did it, does it surprise you or did it surprise you that Berkshire came in so high on Indy Pass Redemptions because, you know, the other ski areas up there are places like Jay Peak and Waterville Valley. And a lot of casual skiers have heard of those places. And when I mentioned Berkshire East to folks in New York, they're like, where? You know, no one, folks outside of your area aren't necessarily familiar with it. Are you surprised that Berkshire East is in that Indy Top 10 every year? Or does it make sense to you just knowing the business and knowing your demographic? I am not surprised at all. I think Mm -hmm. that the northern part of the Berkshires are one of the most special places in the country. 
I think mm-hmm. the terrain is great here. I think the people are phenomenal. You know, don't even get me started on the phenomenal history of the area. You can stand at the top of Berkshire East and see where Moby Dick was written. You know, if you a little bit of imagination, Betsy Ross was born, some of the, the most significant people in the revolution. I mean, you can walk right through history. And our little neck of the woods is is part of it. Berkshire East is its root name is Mount Institute, and that's where Horace Mann, who founded essentially founded the American public school system, had his first school. And this is it's an awesome area, you know, and the hill towns are beautiful. There's a great local economy. There's a lot of education, healthcare, everything's in this area. It, it's hard to discover, right? Like we don't do a great job. There's no made in Charlemont sticker. Like there's a made in Vermont sticker, you know, that's permeated, you know, the national sort of uh, imagination, right? But it's a great mountain. It skis great. And the original guys who, who laid it out and cut it did a good job. You know, I, I debate them a little bit on some of their fall line, you know, layouts, but we're working to correct that. And it's it's an awesome place with a great history. You know, we've always swung over, over, above our weight at a ski racing level. You know, going back to some of the early 50s and 60s skiers out of Greenfield, some of the best skiers in the country. There's always been a presence around the U.S. ski team or national team. There's been 11 people that have either made the development team or been on the US ski team or been around NCAA All-Americans. And we swing above our weight class and always have. And what that creates isn't sort of any sort of overt exceptionalism. It's just, there's a high skier IQ that I think people, there's a segment of the skiing population, we're not for everybody, that when they get to Berkshire East, they say, wow, this is, this is what I miss. And there's an intangible quality it's very particular and very special that people can identify with. And I think that's what we're capturing in those indie visits. I mean, I read the reviews. We certainly have our our fair share of criticism, but usually that's around lack of amenities, but we're working on it. You know, what do you think those intangibles are, John? And and maybe the point of intangibles, you can't put them into words, but you know, sometimes people will say, Oh, it's, you know, I love the ski area because it's, old lifts and just skiing the way it used to be. And, and Berkshire infrastructure wise is really, really modern now because of yep. all the snowmaking upgrades you've mentioned and a high speed lift. And, and it, it is sliding very forcefully into 2023 and, and secure expectations there. So it's clearly not that, or, or, or maybe it is, are you, like, what are those intangibles and are you worried about losing any of those as you modernize the resort? Um, always, always worried about curating the right experience. You know, and you you throw a lot of stuff against the wall and see what sticks, you know, and it's not always a it's stuck because it was financially the right decision stick. It's a stick because the people that you trust and were your mentors or your friends in the ski community tell you it worked, you know, and you appreciate their opinion. I mean, I mean, honestly, we built a, a whole pass product because one of my best friends from ski racing who grew up here, John Blowers, wouldn't buy a pass for five years. And we were like, how do we get John Blowers to buy a pass? Local construction family, they'll laugh because I'm outing them. But it's, <laughs> uh, we finally created the right pass and he bought it that year. And we never okay. told him, but it's, you trust people with legacy in a sport and their experience. And, you know, everything I just, spoke about Charlemont that there's a lot of good skiers and well-educated or or not even school educated but life educated people from our area that that 
have a good heads on their shoulders and you, you look to them for their advice. And that's how you maintain the character of a place. You know, I go back to, if you don't change, you're either going to get changed right out of the business or somebody's going to else is going to change and steal your customer base. So you better keep evolving. So you've not been afraid to experiment, that's for sure, and evolve with skiing. You were a very early adopter of the Indy Pass. I'm curious because the increase in business and volumes at Berkshire seem to align with when you joined Indy. Maybe that's a coincidence. I'm curious how much of a part of your increased volumes Indy Pass is, if at all. I think it's a good amount overall, percentage-wise. It's it's not what you think it is. Percentage-wise, it's not a huge number of skiers for us. I think. I think what Indy did for the industry was, you know, pre-Indy, you had a couple of big players doing passes. And I had this debate with folks at Liftopia, right? So that that's a ticket product. And that's, if you have an XY graph of either passes or tickets, right? It's mountains offer both, but in terms of broader ways to sell your skiing in the market, you have, you know, 1990 or 2000, what am I saying? 2019, you have Epic uh, Icon and Mountain Collective, which are essentially grade A level mountains, you know, quote unquote. And then you had Liftopia at every resort. And it was really just a binary way to sell your products. Like smaller mountains were trying to enter the big pass game, but you're they were really branding themselves around being a C or D level mountain in terms of amenities, right? Like it was an amenity quality. And the Indy Pass gave voice to the term independent which accentuated the qualities of the resorts in the class that we are. And, you know, it's kind of like, you know, Caddyshack. How do you measure yourself in golf? I measure by height. It's like you're not measuring by competing with Vail. Like you can't compete with Vail. But you can compete on intangibles. And Indy gave rise to that vernacular. And that's the brilliant thing about Indy. And that's what we identified with early on was, wow, Indy. In the independence like that that works for us and we were i would like to think that we've embraced it you know hopefully the folks there think we have and then we had it you know it wasn't indy that led to berkshire east being where it was when we came on indy it was it was definitely it might have been the fuel on the fire but the fire was already roaring pretty good by then and it gave us a national platform to be able to you know to speak about ourselves and again, I think people have identified it with it. So it's it's been an awesome partnership and you know, obviously look to carry on. So you've we're in a multi-mountain pass world for sure, and, and NSA has all kinds of stats about how the majority of skier visits now take place on uh, on some sort of season pass or another. You were you mentioned earlier your pass, the Berkshire Summit Pass, which is now unlimited access to Berkshire East Catamount. And Busquet, curious. Several years in, how happy you are with that product? Sounds like you are happy with it, and and continue yeah. to roll it out in a bunch of different super affordable versions. But th- the bigger question I have for you, John, is I I think you've proven that a regional ski pass can work. Do you want to add more mountains, either that you purchase or that you partner with as Ala Busquet? Yeah, for sure. I mean, to be able to do that, you have to have first nation status you know with your partner Mm -hmm. because you can quickly get into gray area and i I think you know obviously the big guys the big pass conglomerates really figured out the back end and indy has as well 
but there's a lot of clarity when that's required when you involve money in different business entities. So to be a regional player where you're, you know, half the time you're just worried about getting open, say 99% of the time, nobody wants to sit down and work out the legalese that ultimately is required to, to have a strong and upstanding partnership amongst the smaller resorts. So it would require us to be involved with some sort of expansion or to have have friends or good partners that, that are in that first nation status like we have with Bosque. So that's the barrier, you know, for expansion. What do you mean by first nation status? Well, I mean like you, handshake, handshake Dale level trust between the entities on how you go out and sell and market that pass. You know, you need to be able to look your partner in the eye and, and be able to work things, things out, you know, over a cup of coffee. If if I just start phoning up every independent mountain in New England and tell them I'd like to build a pass, then, I mean, one, I'm I'm certain the indie wouldn't wouldn't like it, but two, you know, it would require some behind the scenes structure that I'm not, you know, probably a couple of attorneys or at least a few attorney hours to dictate and to really think through. So partnerships are challenging for all the reasons you just laid out, but yeah. if you buy a mountain, it's your mountain. You do what you want with it. Do you want to buy another ski area now that you've got Catamount under control? Um, it's a good question. So yes and no all at once. It has to be the right the right deal, the right partner, you know, resort, the right the right everything. Back to the Goldilocks statement, you know, it's you really gotta watch what you wish for and understand the trends of the sport and where you wanna end up. So I wouldn't say I'm I'm sitting here thumbing through the scary classifieds, you know, just looking for the next best thing that shows up. You, you really got to understand who you are and, and where you want, want to be. So yes and no all at once. Yeah, I, I really thought that you'd make a move on JPEAK and maybe you did because I thought, wow, what a great network that would be going back to those big passes and the sort of feeders that Vale has bought. I mean, if you had a pass with Berkshire East, Catamount, and then JPEAK, I, I mean, that thing... You, everyone in Massachusetts and New York would buy that because they could ski those areas and then they could go up to J Peak whenever they had time to do that. Did you look at J Peak? Did you make a bid? What can you tell us about that process as far as whether or not you considered purchasing that resort? Um, well, that's a big, I mean, that's a big bite of steak, right? So <laughs> <laughs> I definitely made a trip or two to J Peak. Um, mm-hmm. I'll leave it there. Mm-hmm. Um, we were you know, I was, I was in the sidecar, okay. but I was up there. I think a lot of people were up there for all the reasons that you mentioned, you know, JP was a great location. And I think that our connectivity to that part of the world, you know, right out of New York city and Boston would have given folks a reason to buy a regional pass with accessibility to a uh, aspirational partner up North. And that makes a ton of sense. You know, that we, you know, at Catamount, there's, there's basically 12 million skier visits that originate within a two hour drive of the resort. And that's one of the highest density sort of origination points in the United States. Actually, no, 12 million, the 12 million is in the East, about 5 million visits. Sorry, I misspoke. Um, but it's a, uh, it sits right on top of a lot of skiers and a lot of skiing families, which are a target for anybody, you know, to, to bring into their, their Northern Fold. So JP ultimately went for, I, I believe, $76 million, Pacific Group Resorts, super well-respected outfit. 
ended yeah. up with that. And, you know, they, I don't want to speak out of turn. They, maybe they have access to more resources than you do. I, I know, I know you do have access to resources, but you know, it, it's, everyone has their limits, right? So, so maybe J peak ultimately was out of reach. Burke mountain, however, is still for sale. And, and that is, in my opinion, Vermont's most underrated ski area, I think mostly because of where it is. And it actually is right off I-91. It's actually super easy. It's much easier to get to than Sugarbush or Stowe or Smugs because it's right off the interstate. Not quite as big as those, but a really, really solid skiers mountains, tremendous glades, two high-speed quads. It's for sale. It's not going to cost $76 million. Are you looking at Burke? So, you know, Burke's an awful place to be. You know, I would never go there. My wife's not from there. And uh, no, just joking to everybody in the Northeast Kingdom. Um, <laughs> it's, you know, we've I, my wife's family is from the greater St. Johnsbury area on both sides, going back multiple generations. So I've spent a lot of Christmases on Burke Mountain. I ski raced. We did a lot of Eastern Cups at Burke, trained a bit there. I have good friends in and around the mountain. And both as a, uh, back to the hair club, both as a, um, you know, a user and somebody who's in a capacity been been all over the mountain for the last three or four years. It's complicated because it's not a typical for sale sign. You know, this isn't, this is, there's a receiver who has particular requirements out of his role in a receivership. I think that it's an extremely complicated mountain. You know, I think that you can walk into a place like Burke with a lot of hubris and money. And you've seen, we've seen this play out before, you know, just look at the last several owners of the resort and you can, you can step on a lot of pitfalls. Everything you look at is a nut to be cracked. You know, like you got to figure out a lot of different things to make it right. And I, I would view it as a huge personal challenge. I've grown up in this business. I, I call it a PhD level renovation you know you really got to be on it and it's a black diamond mountain with hard terrain to work on that requires people with a with an intimate knowledge of the mountain you have to work inside small towns in northern vermont and work with locals and understand their visions and wants and needs for for community small mountains are essentially quasi-governmental organizations there, there, you almost you can't even be Teddy, Teddy Roosevelt. You can't walk softly and carry a big stick. I mean, it's right. a you. You have to be very thoughtful and respectful and open about what you're trying to achieve, how it aligns with community visions. That goes, I mean, community identity that goes back, you know, hundreds of years and sort of parochial old New England. Everywhere you step around here, and you got to be you got to be thoughtful and. Somewhere in here is a receiver who's stated, you know, a couple of times that he wasn't going to own the mountain this year, and sounds like they still own the mountain. So I, I'd, I'd say that I've I've essentially put a lot of thought into the resort. I've got my ideas about how it could shake out. I've got my concerns about others storming in to try to buy the mountain, thinking they're going to flip it or make an easy buck, because that's certainly not what's going to happen there. So I caution anybody on that front. But at the same time, I, you know, I confidently say that I'm I'm at best sitting in the wings, and I'm visiting it as a uh, as part of my wife's extended family, you know. And we'll see where it goes. But I certainly don't control the process. 
So media reports indicate there is a bid on Burke. So sort of the same way it played out at Jay Peak, where there was a stalking horse and that was revealed to be Pacific Group Resorts. And then there were two more anonymous bidders. The general public never did find out who they are. And, and maybe, you know, and maybe you were one of them. But it, what's preventing you from approaching the receiver and making a competing bid based on the one that's already been put into the court records? I think I would answer that in a hypothetical because what's one, there's, there isn't a defined process. You know, JPEAK was a, a very intentional sale. Like there was data rooms and there was a lot of organization around it. The Burke process is much more nebulous. I think that there's a couple of problems with Burke, which is, and I've seen this before, it was very apparent at different mountains. You see people's passion projects, and I can't remember how many different owners there are Burke. Maybe I'd like to say there were seven or eight. And there's a lot of unleaping that needs to happen up there before the mountain functions the way it should function. So you can see where, you know, owner A did this or owner B did that. And there's, you got to spend a lot of money digging yourself out of the hole that's been created before the place can hit plane. And if you're supposed to enter a process that essentially is is a semi-public auction and you blow all your money on buying it, then you probably spent too much money buying what you bought if you can't fix it. You know, there's a certain there's a certain amount required to buy it, and then there's a lot amount required to make the necessary alterations to the resort. And that that dynamic and that that equation has to work for the purchaser. And when when you enter as a stocking horse, you're basically your your price is just being used to drum up other business. And so that's why it doesn't make sense really to do anything. And it's the reason why I'm essentially backed out of the process is because you just don't know where this whole thing's headed. Are you saying the stocking horse bid is too high and unrealistic as a starting point? I think it's a complicated environment and that if you're not careful, you're going to blow a lot of money. And I don't, you know, that's not a game we're willing to play. It's weird right now because I, you know, I'll stay solidly on the record. I mean, I know the way I'm talking. It's like I got a foot in the boat and one out. I'm I'm off the boat. Um, I am supportive of the resort. I have a lot of friends that work there. I think they have a phenomenal team and it's a great location. I'm solidly on the sidelines of this thing with opinions that are informed. So I don't want to imply here that anything about any current bid or where the process sits other than that it's a it's an undefined process with with no real timeline i mean when the stocking horse there were there were people that looked i think every major entity in in the ski world looked at j peak over a period of six or seven years and then it started to heat up a little bit but when the stocking horse went in let's just say it was in june of 2022 there was a court date there was communicated processes and then there was a defined auction time. You know, it was a court, it was essentially a courthouse auction, right? You know, 12 noon on a Tuesday. And that's where I think Burke's going to end up. But, you know, I don't know if it looks like a dentist in the medicine map to look at, you know, to get there or not. You know, the, the little cartoons where he runs all over town and through the doghouse and over the fence. Um, because, you know, that's essentially 
how I see this playing out as an observer and an informed observer. But we'll just have to see when, when it all happens, what's going to happen. What would it take to draw you back into the process? Just a, just a serious, a seriousness to the, to it. You know, there's no, look, I mean, at the end of the day, you're putting people up the mountain on lifts and you're pumping water, you know? So there's only so many hours in the day that you can talk about this stuff. And there, there would just have to be in a serious approach with some real, some real backers and in a real way to get from, from point A to point B on the resort. Right now, I just see a poorly defined, the bid that went in the spring. And yeah, I know a lot about it. And I'm not in any way implying that those folks are, are not real or, you know, don't have a good pathway. It's just, you know, where I fit in the puzzle is I have two businesses that are complicated, that I'm building a lift, I'm opening ski areas. And, you know, when the time comes, we'll see where all, where all the dust settles. All right. Well, that's one I'll be watching closely. Let's talk about Catamount here, John. In particular, I want to talk about the lift fleet. So as I mentioned in the intro, you have put up three new used lifts at Catamount since you purchased the ski area in 2018. The first one was Promenade. That's a triple chair over on Looker's left side of the resort. And that was pretty smooth, pretty standard. Yep. That was pre-pandemic before the world went to, you know, went crazy. The second two, Catamount, which is a quad that replaced a double, and Glade, which is a triple that I think also replaced a double, those took a lot longer. Take us through this here, John. What did Catamount's lift fleet look like when you got there in 2018? How did you go about modernizing it? And why did those second two lifts take so long to get on the mountain? Well, we chose to replace them for a reason, right? And do it at a time that was not good for us or anybody so we we went out and tore them down and somewhat impulsively and that the only reason i would say a qualified as impulsively is it's hard to anticipate you know literally every supply chain on the planet getting jammed up <laughs> right probably except for a hand sanitizer produced by you know distilleries but okay. beyond that it it became hard to get toilet paper screws plywood and specialty parts for ski lifts you know shockingly mm -hmm. but we also you know there's an unsaid thing here where where we we just we chose to do this knowing where we're at and knowing where we needed to get to and we embarked on that journey and took you know six eight months longer than it needed to a lot of lessons i think learned on all sides around you know as we did it but we did it and you know, they're in. So there was a couple of rough years in there where we had lower than expected uh, lift capacity. Some projects that would get stalled. We would have contractors. We had a lift re basically ready for, you know, a particular contract in August of last year and the guy didn't show up to December, you know, and there's, there's a handful of these people in the country or in North America and you want to scream at the rooftops, but you can't. So, you know, you're, you're at the mercy of a very particular industry and the supply chains and workforce that support it. So you kind of just are stuck in line and you keep plowing ahead. So you say you tore those lifts down impulsively, but let's dig into that a little bit. I mean, Catamount was a 1967 SLI double. Glade was a 1971 SLI double. I mean, SLI. They needed to come down. Yes. They, those lifts Why? needed to come down. Um, well, I mean, if you're running a, you know, a, 
I have a buddy with an, whose parents have a beautiful old Mustang and it doesn't have seatbelts, right? So right. that's not your grocery grabber today. I'm not saying it's a safety issue. I'm just saying it's, you know, you need to swap out lifts. So it's a great car to drive. It's a good Sunday cruiser, but you're not driving the kids to school in it. So it's the same thing with ski lifts. You know, 1967, you know, I'm, I almost need to uh, get a pencil out to do that math on age, but it's not, there becomes a point where you start looking at it. It's like, okay, we're going to do all these upgrades you know, buy a hundred thousand dollar, you know, or, or embark on a hundred thousand dollars, say haul rope replacement project. At the end of it, what do you got? You got a 1967 lift with a new rope on it that will not survive its demolition in a decade. So what are you even doing making this capital, you know, this maintenance capital project on buying a haul rope? So you stare at what you can do, what the resources are and that you have. And we, we, we found and identified a couple of great replacement lifts uh, that can go in there and, and we did it. And I'd like to think we, we actually, we hit that market well, sort of the good used lift market. And we were able to rehab those lifts properly. You know, there's just parts and pieces that took a little longer than anyone hoped for. You know, it's hard. It's a hard business putting a ski lift up a mountain. So you took the back roads, but you got there. You have yep. five functioning chairlifts on Catamount. How happy are you with the upgrades, John? You know, the infrastructure is awesome. Uh, you can see it in the opening we had last weekend. We we did well. The guys are and gals, the, the team is going to do a better every single day. We learn more about operating the snowmaking system and lift system. The group of people operating the resort are awesome. You know, total confidence in them. And in terms of the lift infrastructure, we can move a lot of people up the mountain at one time. And now we're into this, so back into the, the pre-high-speed quad at the Berkshire East detachable versus fixed grip debate. I mean, you, you're into the equation of where do people sit on a busy mountain and they are in a line on a lift or on a run and the lifts move along pretty well. You know, these, these are smaller New England mountains as in a thousand vertical, not 3000 vertical. And we can sit a lot of people in the air and it's going to be a good on hill experience down there. And I, I would like to think that one of the best things we've achieved outside of the team and the infrastructure upgrades is the beautification of the resort. I walked in in June this year and the details are really coming together. And you can see that in the base area. And that was this time last year and the year before, I mean, essentially you'd walk out front and it looked like we were, you know, we might as well have been operating the gravel pit. Um, okay. This year, you know, there's, the planters are beautiful. The the patios are, are looking great. The the ski experience is good. You, you can get from Massachusetts back to, to New York easily. You know, the hills are, the the grass is in strong and it's cleaned up and it looks really nice, nice and neat. And I think that that's something that our customers are really going to notice. Like it's a beautiful mountain and it's proximate to a lot of people with a lot of varied terrain. We, we opened four trails. There's certain qualities when you look at a webcam of each mountain. So if you stare at Berkshire East, we, you know, over, say, 40 years of emphasis, we can concentrate a lot of firepower into the base area and really make it look snowy and neat. Catamount's just, you know, we, we laid in all the infrastructure, but it's still getting dialed in, you know, so there's a lot of tweaks and optimizations that'll happen over each summer going forward and, the, and everybody's working hard on it. But we opened essentially more acreage at Catamount than we did at Berkshire East under different 
tougher circumstances. Uh, it's a little warmer during the daytimes down there. And then last night, you know, Berkshire East wasn't able to make snow, but but we started in on the upper sections of the New York side of the mountain, which is priority terrain for not only us but our customer base. Uh, we we were focused in the on the front face and on the mass side trails, and now we're up into New York, and everything's we're just plowing ahead. So I'm extremely fired up about Catamount. So lots of big improvements there, and in fact, all of your lifts, while they've all been relocated from somewhere else. The oldest one on the mountain, the Meadows Triple, was put in place in 2005. For now, do you think you're done with lift upgrades at Catamount, or do you have more in mind? Well, I think the lift fleet's in very good shape. We're also extremely opportunistic, so we're in a wait-and-see category. Probably going to need to let the, um, the ripples settle after a couple of heavy years of infrastructure projects at both resorts and just see where we're at. So on the beautification point that you were mentioning, I this falls into the everyone has an opinion category that you were talking about earlier. So I, I've gotten quite a few comments from Catamount old schoolers who are not so happy about cutting down the trees between Race Slope, Catamount Trail, and on stage. And I'll acknowledge here that you've added a bunch of new trails to Catamount since buying the resort. But I want to give you an opportunity to lay out why that made sense because there, there's always there's always the operator's point of view there's always the skier's point of view sometimes the skiers just don't understand what you're doing um but i'm sure you've heard that feedback as well so so what can you say about that decision to take those what were individual trails on the front and kind of clear cut those and, and now you have one broad slope on the front side of catamount yeah it's got its plus pluses and, and minuses i think on the plus side to fit the lift in where we wanted to a lot of those trees had to go so once you're there, you just finish the job. There was a lot of accumulated, almost 70 years of accumulated debris in those mid-trail zones that's been cleaned up. So that's that would put in the beautification front. In terms of you know stabilizing the work zone, it's looking pretty wildflowering to me during the summer. And we're, we're really starting to concentrate firepower in terms of snowmaking into those areas. So they will ski great. You know, and do ski great once they're open. I will acknowledge we've struggled to open those zones the last couple of years. So making the math equation, right? So you can pump X number of gallons of water per minute. You have a certain amount of electricity or air available. The electricity fires the fans or an air compressor. Or if you're an air and water system, you have a certain amount of air and water you can deliver to any given spot. And if you have, you know, 20 acres that you need to open, or in this case, closer to 15, you have to pump X number of gallons of water per acre and you get the job done. Now I'm totally cognizant of how much water we have to move to cover those slopes. And we have put the infrastructure in place to be able to get there and we're going to keep improving that equation. So that's my answer to that. When, when that happens, it's going to ski really well. So I think that I understand the critique. It's my job to accept those critiques. I also, you know, just ask that people, people see how it, it fits together once the puzzle is fit together. People have seen parts and pieces of the puzzle, but but it's certainly not finished. And I, like anything at Catamount, just give us the opportunity, give us some peaceful moments, uh, which I think we're headed into right now. And we're going to get the job done and work hard and show people how that resort can ski. One of the most important pieces of the puzzle at Catamount, from my point of view, and, and maybe your biggest restriction is parking. And you're smashed right up against the highway. So I, I'm not sure how much room 
you have to expand parking. But what's your thinking long term about a parking solution for Catamount, John? Are, are you able to expand? Is there potential for satellite lots? Is is parking actually a good capacity controller? What, what are your thoughts on parking at that resort? We're comfortable with where we're at. You know, there's more parking at Catamount than there is at Berkshire. We have satellite lots on property and we've expanded use of those. We think we have some offsite lots in our future that we can talk about, but it hasn't really been a constraint yet. You know, you look at it, say, a skiers at one time equation, which involves trail capacity, uphill capacity, lodge capacity in some sort of mushed together metric. And we're within ourselves. You know, there's, there's not really something that's out of whack there. I think I would disagree. I actually think that parking is one one of the nicest things about Catamount is its parking because a lot of mountains have remote lots or, or lots that extend away from the resort in sort of a depth. You know, the, the later you show up, the further you are from the resort. I think there's about six acres or seven acres of parking right up close to the resort that's a long, narrow parking lot. So whenever you get there, if you're in that main lot, you're not walking that far. You may show up and be left of the, the lodge that you hope to get into or right of it, but you're going to walk in pretty close to it. And I, I view that as a huge competitive advantage for the resort. And I think it's I think it's a good layout. One of the first things we did, I mean, the first day I ever went there at a 4x4 four four Ford, and I went down to skin the mountain. I skied the mountain by hiking it after they were closed in March a couple of times. And I got stuck in the lot trying to leave um, in four wheel drive. So we've put, we've actually put a lot in terms of uh, putting in bringing in crushed stone and and thinking about the parking experience. So I just you know yeah it's a look when when we break it because we're so busy I'll call you back and tell you you were right I would I don't I'm not certain we're there yet and we've got some some things we can do but. Uh, it's funny because I've seen that. I saw that in a social media comment within the last 24 hours somewhere. And um, I, I debated whether I disagreed with the person who, who said that because I think it's one of our strengths. It, it, it No question that you are close to the lodge. And I think that's great. And I typically tend to get there early. When I'm So I, I based that comment on two things. Number one was when I'm leaving, there the, the lot is very tight, right, to get yep. out of. And there's a lot of people who are coming in and there doesn't appear to be spots for them, but who knows what, what's in there. The, the second thing I'm basing it on is just my conversations with Rich Edwards, and he always seems very stressed about parking. So, you know, I, I may be misreading that, and it sounds like it's something you've thought about uh, pretty extensively and are comfortable with. I'm curious if Catamount, because it's a very busy mountain, and you've been able to rebuild the snowmaking, rebuild the lift fleet, is there expansion potential for that ski area? There is, yeah. They, they, I think they used to call it the West Mountain Expansion, but I can't remember. There's a series of, there's a trail and lift layout that goes down into the current tubing area. So though it's not permitted or, or anything, there is the ability to put lifts up that side of the mountain and to build, again, similar to Berkshire East, some really nice uh, intermediate terrain. So that would be on the east side of Breezy Hill Road, right? You're not crossing the road? Not crossing the road inside Breezy Hill down into... Um, Again, the tubing zone. And where would the lifts originate from? Would they be near the current lifts or from the tubing zone? No, from the tubing zone. I've never planted a flag and said it starts here and it goes there. But essentially from the tubing area, you know, within a couple hundred yards or several football fields, you throw a lawn dart out there and then you throw one up near the the, uh, cell tower, sort of on the upper lower sidewinder zone. And 
you probably got your lift layout. You know, you, you unload in a spot where you can make it back to the base area by going down chute or alley cat. But also you open up a pod of trails that are largely within the existing pod of New York trails with a remote base. What's the vertical over there? Does it would it go to the summit? No, well, you could. You probably sneak it up there somewhere. Never, I've never pursued it. So, scouts honor never. You know, I <laughs> I understand how it fit together, and I've walked it, but I haven't necessarily put pen to paper and and staked out all the stats. I, I think it'd be sizable in terms of Massachusetts scheme. So, for you, and and this is goes back to the same conversation we had earlier about Berkshire East expansion. What are the primary factors here? Is it because it seems like you have access to capital? And it seems like you have the know-how to do it, obviously. So, so what's, what's the factor? And, and you have the volumes that could probably absorb more skiers. So for, for looking at the potential expansions at each ski area, what would it take to make them happen? Is it just getting to a place where you feel like you have enough runway to take on a big project? Is, is it, in fact, financing? Is it, is it just waiting for volumes to get to a certain point? Kind of what, what's driving your decision and, and your calculus there? So my, my brother is the primary dry owner of these resorts, right? And he has a view, very particular view, that he believes in in the, the towns and the communities of Western Massachusetts. And this is his way to create and grow businesses that are integral to these communities over the long haul. And there is no metric table that we're working off of. I can't answer your question. But, you know, I think a Supreme Court justice said he'd, he'd know it if he saw it. And I think that that's the answer here, right? Like there will be a point in time where you you know what you got when you see it, and there'll be certain things that we pay attention to that that tell us that. But until then, we're we're just sort of plowing ahead. All right, John. I, listen, I could do this all day, but I want to respect your time, and I know you got a business to run. La- last thing I want to ask you about today: four years ago on this podcast, you told me that your goal with Catamount, and this was just short, more than a year after buying it. You told me your goal was to make it one of the best small ski areas in the country. How are you feeling about that goal? Do you feel like you're getting there? Do you feel like you are there? Where are you on that journey? I think that we are there. I don't think our customer base knows they're there yet. I hate the word intentional, you know, like I'm intentionally eating yogurt today, but (laughs) we are intentionally, I'm keeping my mouth shut, you know, up until this point, I haven't, there's no letters to this my my team is awesome. They are empowered to, you know, market the resort the way they need to. They're empowered to do the things that they can with the tools that have been given them. And I am confidently waiting and seeing how how this season goes because I'm optimistic. And there's a lot of lot of metrics by which you can measure a ski area, you know, whether the French fry or the the rental system or whatever. You know, but but Catamount is a special, special place. It's got a long history. There's been a lot of achievements that have come from the resort, a lot of innovation. Some of the early snowmaking patents came from the folks who ran it, the Gilberts. And the mountain had to go through a renovation, right? It just, they played that string as long as they could. And we did it in a way that was, I think we wore it on our sleeves pretty well. It was tough. It was invasive. It's hard for mountains to go through that level of, Look, I mean, we're not Killington with seven different peaks, right? Like you dig a you dig a pile of dirt to put a lift in it. It can't go, you know, off site to one of the ten thousand acres you own. It, it goes right next door, and you sit and stare at it. 
and it's ugly, tough, it gets rained on, it falls apart, it erodes, it comes back. Like we had, we had to deal with all that stuff. And right now the conversations I'm having with my team are, how come the snowmaking's not working? Oh, you know, we, you know, the contractor didn't get to that thing. What, what's going on? It's, you made snow on Ridge last night. How do we, how do we optimize it so that you can open it faster? Like where are the gaps in the snowmaking system? You got all the snowmaking running within two hours. How can you do it in an hour and a half? You know, we're, we're optimizing something that is there versus building something that or rebuilding something that's falling apart. And we're, we're coming at it from such a different angle this year. I'm really optimistic about the resort where it's headed. Uh, the team that's there, I can't emphasize that enough. It's sort of been, you know, we've been riding this Bronco, everybody for a couple of years. But the fact is, is no matter how you, how you want a Monday morning quarterback, what happened, whatever we did had to happen. Like there is no question. If it, if one of those things didn't happen, it would have just happened next year. And we would have drugged this thing out over seven years or a decade. And they got to a point where you just sit there and look at it and say, all right, we're in this thing and we're not getting out of it until it's done. And the work there is done. You know, we, the maintenance side is, is what it is or the investment, you know, in terms of, of doing something new, like a new development like that, that's, that's it. But the renovation, the re- rehabilitation capital that was required to, to essentially operate in 2023 and be competitive, that work's done. And I'm fired up to be able to show that off. Uh, but we need cold temps. We need peaceful weather. I'm optimistic about the weather this year and where we are. You didn't want to get into El Nino, La Nina. But I, I like our long range forecasts right now. You know, we got to we got to sort of weather some some of your typical December thaws that come after the November cold snaps that we usually get. But again, I cannot emphasize how fired up I am about the year down there. But we got to perform, and that pressure's on us now. So I, I think everybody who's who's involved is ready for that challenge. All right, John, like I said, I could do this all day, but let's walk off on that. I want to let you get to your thing. I really can't thank you enough. I get the request for to have you on the pod, back on the pod all the time. So cool. I really appreciate you making the time, especially in December when you're trying to open two ski areas. So thank you very much, John. And, and I hope you have an awesome winter. Yeah. Thank you, Stuart. And, you know, humbled about the requests, but it's, it's always nice to hear. So thank you. That's John Schaefer, co-owner and general manager of Berkshire East and Catamount. John, you crushed it, as usual. No surprise there. Berkshire East and Catamount Nation, I hope you enjoyed that. I know you've been asking me for it like every other day since the first one came out four years ago, and rightfully so. These are important mountains that are changing fast, and I really hope this conversation gave you a little more insight into why those ski areas are moving in the direction they are. Thank you all very much for listening. 2024 is going to be huge in the storm. I have conversations scheduled already with the leaders of Sunday River, Big Sky, Red Mountain, Mount Bachelor, Sugar Bowl, Okemo, Panorama, Arapaho Basin, and a whole bunch more in the new year. To get those episodes the moment they are live, please visit stormskiing.com and subscribe to the Storm Skiing Newsletter. New podcasts appear in your email box several hours before syncing with the podcast services, including Apple and Spotify. There are free and paid tiers of the newsletter. And paid subscribers receive podcasts seven days before everyone else. You can also follow the storm on Twitter slash X, Instagram, and threads at Stormski Journal. 
Until next time, stay well, stay safe. I'm Stuart Winchester, and I will talk to you again very soon. The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.